We are starting a new sermon series this morning called God at Work. And I realized, as I was thinking about this this morning, this could be a series about how you could live out your relationship with God at your workplace. That's not what it's about, but I guess it could have been. It's not what I mean. That's a good subject. Have you ever wondered, maybe said out loud or just thought in your own quietness or your own chaos, God, what in the world are you doing? What are you doing, God? Have you ever looked at the world in just utter frustration? God, what are you doing? Have you ever looked at the difficulties in your own life? God, what are you doing? Have you ever tried to be a, a good follower of Christ, a good Christian, a good person of faith, and yet you just fail repeatedly and you think, God, what, what are you doing? Sometimes it's really hard to see what God is doing. We look at difficulties in our life, we look at struggles, we look at the world, and we just don't see God at work. And it seems like he's not at work. And we, because we don't see it, it's easy to jump to that conclusion, where is God? He's absent, he's not doing anything. And that's where we have to go back to the authority of God's word to understand God is always at work. God is always working He is busy carrying out his plans, whether or not we see it. And that's what this series is about, God at work. We're going to be studying the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Did you ever think you would hear that in a sermon series? Ezra and Nehemiah. And we're going to look at what is God doing when it seems the world is falling apart. Because I think, at times, maybe not all the time, but at times we look at our own lives lives or the world as we see it and we think, it's just all falling apart. God, do you know anything about that? Have you ever worked with that before? Absolutely, he has. Ezra and Nehemiah take place in a time when the world was falling apart. A time of incredible difficulty, and yet God raises up leaders and uses those leaders in the lives of his people to do amazing things to carry out God's perfect plan using broken people in a broken world to accomplish his plan. God is at work. And I want us to be able to ask ourselves, how does knowing that God is at work give us hope? That's one of the things I hope you will get out of this series is hope. Though I don't see it, I know God is at work. I also hope you'll get out of this series. How can you join God in what he's doing? If he is at work, it is our role as followers of Christ and believers in God through the power of his son Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. It is our role to follow God in his work, to trust him to believe in what he's doing and join him in it. And I hope that you can know with certainty that God is absolutely at work and his work never fails. Never. And so we come to these books of Ezra and Nehemiah. I would guess if I went around and asked you how many of you have spent some time in the book of Nehemiah, probably some of you have, especially if you were at a church that did a building project, they probably talked about Nehemiah. 
we did a building project here three years ago and somebody suggested you should do a sermon series on Nehemiah. No. And it's okay. I'm not saying that's wrong. I just want scripture to speak for itself. And, and if, if I'm trying to get people excited about a building project, I don't want to like accidentally or maybe on purpose kind of twist the, the word to that, that meaning. So we didn't talk about Nehemiah during the building project, but it is such a good book. And yes, it's about a building project. Although I don't think the application is let's go do a building project for Jesus. But I would guess if I went around and asked you how many of you have spent time in the book of Ezra, that number would probably be much smaller. It's not a well-known book. You don't get a lot of Bible studies on Ezra. You don't get a lot of sermon series on Ezra. I think I'll find as I walk through this series, I'll understand more why, because it's kind of difficult. But we're going to be looking at these two books that are so often overlooked in the Old Testament. And it seems like it wouldn't apply to us. It's about, specifically in these two books, a renewal of the Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament law. They spend a lot of time looking at the law. Well, we're New Testament believers. Christ has saved us. He has fulfilled the law for us. So it's easy to ask, well, what does this have to do with us? These books are about rebuilding the temple. We don't have a temple today. We don't build buildings as a temple to worship God in. We build buildings as tools to use to worship God. But it's not like there's some secret room back here where the glory of God dwells. That's not why we come here. There's a storage closet back there. It's not very exciting. There's nothing special about our building in the sense of God being here more than anywhere else. So what does it have to do with us? There's a whole 12 chapters in Nehemiah about building walls around their Old Testament city of Jerusalem. I don't think the application is to go to Greece, New York and say, hey, God's really leading us to build a wall around our city. Like this is the fulfillment of this. So we look at these passages and we say, what does this have to do with us? What do ancient buildings have to do with modern issues? If anything, why should we study Ezra and Nehemiah? Now, I think we should study because there's so much in here that they dealt with that in unique and different ways, but we still deal with them today. They dealt with opposition to their faith. I'm guessing some of you can identify with that. They dealt with difficulty with world political leaders. I'm guessing some of us can identify with that. They dealt with a culture and and world situations that were constantly changing, making it very difficult for them to follow God. I'm guessing we can identify with some of that. Their world was constantly changing. And yet they understood, sometimes in better ways than others, but they understood that their role was to be faithful in holding on to the hope that God gave them through it all. To holding on to hope when so much seemed hopeless. And I hope you can see that that definitely applies to us today. So we can look at them and say, how did they do it? How did God work in them to say, how does he still work today? Now, why study these books together? Why should we look at Ezra and Nehemiah together? Why not do a series on Ezra and a series on Nehemiah? There is some evidence way back when that they were actually written as one book. It is pretty obvious that the author of Ezra and Nehemiah is Ezra. 
He was a scribe. He was a scholar. He was very detailed. The language is very similar. The tone, it's written to be one historical record. It was at some point separated into two books because of the difference in the themes, and we'll look at that. And that's okay. But it is, in many ways, one story with a lot of overlap. In fact, Ezra shows up in a whole chapter of Nehemiah in a very prominent way. So the storyline goes together. These two books follow three key leaders. Each leader has a whole section where God is at work in a unique way, doing something unique, and and working through these leaders to lead his people. Sometimes they follow, sometimes they don't. They each face difficulty along the way. The first is Zerubbabel. That's a fun one to say. Zerubbabel. May not be quite pronouncing that right, but it's more fun to say it that way. I think it's Zerubbabel but I don't care. Zerubbabel. Ezra chapters 1 through 6 deals with Zerubbabel. He was the leader of God's people, bringing a group of people back to Israel from exile. We'll talk about that in a second. Ezra chapter 7 through 10 deals with Ezra. He is this scholar in the Old Testament law that leads God's people to a renewed commitment to the Old Testament covenant and the Old Testament law. Nehemiah chapter 1 through 12. Can you guess who the leader is there? It's Nehemiah. He is leading another group to return, and in this case, to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Each of these leaders is used by God in amazing ways. Each of them, and this profoundly profoundly struck me as I was studying this, spent a lot of time on sabbatical on this, this sermon series. But it struck me just the incredible difficulty they faced as they were being faithful. They faced severe opposition at times. And so we're going to look at that. They faced opposition from outside of the people of God, the world. I think that we kind of get, like we face opposition from the culture, from from, uh, just the general population at times. But they also faced opposition from the people they were trying to help. Things didn't always go smoothly. In fact, seldom did they go smoothly. And yet through all of it, God is at work. And that's the unifying theme I saw through these three leaders. God is at work in each one, and it's the same plan. Different building projects, different themes, but same plan that God is doing. The other interesting thing, these two books of Ezra and Nehemiah, if I open my Bible here to Ezra, there it is. Let's see if I find Matthew is somewhere in here. Okay. In fact, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ezra. If you can find it, it's right after 2 Chronicles. First 2 Chronicles, after First and 2 Kings, those are really big books. You'll probably come across them. Ezra's right at the end of them. Okay? So here's my Bible, right? Here's Ezra. Here's the rest of the Old Testament after Ezra. Did you know that Ezra and Nehemiah are the last historical books of the Old Testament? In terms of chronology, they record the ending of Old Testament history. Well, what's all this here in the middle? Well, it's Psalms, Proverbs, the prophets. Esther's in there too. She's right after Nehemiah. But Esther actually takes place slightly before the book of Nehemiah, kind of around the same time. But in terms of the history of the the Israelite people in their own land returning, this is the end. And so when we're thinking in terms of the people's experience, as we read Ezra and Nehemiah, we are reading the end of their experience of their kind of history before there's this 400 years of silence 
until the time in the New Testament when Christ is born. And so I think it's really helpful to see where does all of this Old Testament history end up before we get to the New Testament. Now, we are going to see through this how God is preparing his people for his son, Jesus Christ. That's a profound theme. It's not directly stated, but it is woven in and through everything God is doing and how things turn out. How God is preparing us through the, for the greater work that he is going to do through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I need to call out some difficulties we're going to face a studying, uh, in studying Ezra and Nehemiah. This is a historical narrative. In other words, it's history. It's a record of what happened. It's a narrative. It's just saying this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Now, here's the difficulty with historical narrative in Scripture. There is little to no commentary from God as to what happened, whether or not it was the right thing that should have happened. It's simply a record of this happened. It would be nice at times to have a little subtext from God himself going, man, they really screwed this up. I didn't want them to do that. They should never have done it that way. We don't have that. So we have to approach it with some humility want to be careful not to sit in judgment and read too much into it. We need to understand this is what happened. This is what the people did. Does not make it right, and it does not necessarily make it wrong. This is what happened. So that's a difficulty as you come to this. Important along with that is there are some very difficult themes in this book. The theme of interracial marriage between Jewish people and Gentile, anybody that's not a Jewish person, comes up. In this book, it is a profound theme throughout this book, and we're going to have to deal with it. And, and I'll just give you a heads up. The application is not that different races should not get married to each other. That is an improper application of this book. A proper application of it is that a follower of God through Jesus Christ should not be married to someone who is not a follower of God through Jesus Christ. That is a better application of this book. And we'll look at that as we get there. We also have to understand we are dealing with ancient history. This happened a long time ago in a very different culture, in a diff, very different setting. And it is my job, I hope and I pray as, as the pastor and the preacher, to bring you up to speed on some of that and give you some background information to help you to understand these things. But by looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, I want us to better understand how God works in this world how he uses feeble people like us, and especially how he points through his work in all ways to his son, Jesus Christ. You see, for each of these three leaders, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, each has kind of an ending of their story in these books. And the ending of each of their stories is in many ways a profound disappointment. Things don't go well. Things end up being an absolute mess. And you might think, oh, that's great. And as I'm reading this and, and I saw that and I saw the end of each of their ministries and going, man, things don't really end well for them. I thought that's because their work is never complete without Jesus Christ. Everything they were trying to do could never be completed without Jesus Christ. Everything that we can do on behalf of God can never be complete without Jesus Christ. When we try to do what we can do apart from Jesus Christ, we will always end in failure and disappointment. And so these books are going to point us ahead to God's work through his son, Jesus Christ. 
I want to look briefly this morning at just chapters 1 and 2 to kind of get into the text of Ezra. I'm not going to read it all. Half of it is a genealogy. Don't make me do that. Um, but we're going to look at some of it. Let me just quick give you an overview of these two chapters. First of all, a bit of background. Going all the way back in the Old Testament, all the way back into Genesis, God calls one man, Abram, and his family into a relationship. And he says, through you, I will bless the whole world. That's God's work, to work in a group of people and through them to do his work in the world. And so the Jewish nation is born. Eventually, they end up in in Egypt, and they're enslaved, and God miraculously saves them, and he brings them into the promised land and plants them there in the nation of Israel. And things don't go so well. There's ups and there's downs, faithfulness, lack of faithfulness. Think we can identify. Eventually, civil war breaks out. And the nation of Israel, God's people, supposedly his representatives on this earth, split into two distinct factions, two nations with separate kings, separate separate governments, and to some degree, a bit of a separate religion. The northern kingdom, about 700 years before Jesus comes along, the northern kingdom is taken into exile by the world power of that day, the Assyrians. A massive empire, brutal, destructive, Over a long period of time, they come in and they take the Israelites away as slaves in captivity. About 80 years later, on the world stage, this powerful empire of Assyria is conquered by another powerful empire of Babylon. Always a bigger fish. And history shifts in a profound way. And the Babylonians take over, and around 600 years before Christ, they attack what's left of God's people in the southern kingdom. And over a period of about 20 years, they live with successive attacks, successive waves of people taken into captivity, until eventually in 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple of God is broken into and plundered. And the things that God had commanded them to make to worship him and to represent his presence among them are stolen and taken into captivity along with God's people. Guys, this isn't just history. We need to know this history in order to understand the stage that that Ezra and Nehemiah takes place on. But it's not just history. These people had a promise from God. They were his people in his land. And he had a promise, unbreakable with them. And what they're experiencing and what they're witnessing to them seemed like God's promises falling flat. It seemed like the loss of everything God had promised them. The destruction of all of their hope. And a loss of what they had had faith in. I think we can identify with that. How many of us maybe grew up in the church or came to know Christ at an early age? And then you go through tough times and you just say, God, where are you? This isn't what you promised me. This isn't what I heard. I thought everything was going to go wonderful and it looks like it's all falling apart. That's exactly what they were going through in a profoundly difficult way. As their homes are demolished, their children are taken away from them, their temple is demolished, their whole culture seems like it's being ripped apart. 
50 years later, after the southern exile, the Babylonians are defeated by the next big fish, the Persians. And God's people scattered all around the world at this point have a new empire to serve. Still not back home, still not able to worship God the way they want. And yet, the Old Testament is filled with books like like Jeremiah and Isaiah that yes, they say that God is punishing his people, but they also had this message of hope. A time will come that God will return his people. Ezekiel has this beautiful picture of, of dead bones. That's not the beautiful part, but dead bones on a field. And God says to Ezekiel, these are going to come back to life. I will raise my people back up. I will reestablish them in the land. And that's the hope that is ringing in their ears as we come to the book of Ezra. A time will come. God will restore us and bring us back to our land. And we will be his people once again. And so we come to Ezra chapter 1 and this decree of Cyrus. Now, I just want to give you a little instruction, I guess. Um, I have tried throughout much of my preaching to put verses up on the screen for you, but I have made a decision. When we're looking at the book that we're studying, I expect you to have it open. I'm just going to make that decision on my own. I want you to have a Bible open on your lap, an app. I don't care. It doesn't matter if it's technology or paper, whatever. Have the book open. I want you to see this is really God's word. When I go to places outside of the passage we're studying, I will put it up on the screen. But the passage we're studying, I hope and pray you have it open. So that, that's just my expectation. If you don't, that's on you, but I'm not going to put it up here. So just because sometimes it is a distraction. Anyway, you didn't need to know that. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Again, think of the crisis they're going through. And the hope that they're about to hear. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Oh, could you imagine hearing this? This is what they were hoping for. As we come to Ezra and Nehemiah, what's ringing in the minds of the people is this is it. Finally, God's promises are going to be fulfilled. This happens around 538 BC, 538 years or so before Jesus comes on the scene. I know some people don't like dates, some people do, but I'm going to try to give them as best I can. God's bringing his people home. And Cyrus, this foreign pagan king, is declaring that they can go and rebuild the temple. Not only can they, he's going to help them. The people that they leave out of, the Persian people, are going to shower them with gifts and blessings that they can use to build the temple. And so we have in verses 5 through 8, this return to the land. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. 
All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out of the, or brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. That's amazing. A pagan king commands his people to give gifts to the Israelites to leave and go back to Judah, back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple and The treasures that were stolen out of the temple by three empires ago have been kept and he gives them to the Jewish people to take back and reestablish the worship in the temple. That is amazing. And in verses 9 to 11, they give an account of these things. I'm not going to read those, but there's a listing of how many of the different articles. Ezra was a good scribe and he took careful records. Now, one interesting thing to note, I should qualify what I just said. Ezra may not have actually been born when this book starts. This is quite a bit before Ezra comes on the scene, 50 to 60 years or so. He picks up, we'll see him in chapter 7, he will appear much later, but he is going back and writing the history of how they got to that point. Ezra chapter 2, I'm not going to read. If you can skim it on your own, you'll see it as a genealogy. I'm just not going to read it talks about all the descendants and the number of people who returned with Zerubbabel and with this guy Sheshbazaz, who actually kind of disappears from the scene after this. We're not really sure what happened to him. But they returned to Israel. And then at the end of chapter 2, it says, When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. Remember, the temple had been demolished. And so they're getting ready to rebuild it. According to their ability to give to the, uh, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, 100 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns along with some of the other people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. And the stage is set in these first two chapters for one of the most important fulfillments of God's promises to his people, a rebuilding of the temple, God's return to dwell among his people. Now, at this point, some of the the deeper, more more critical thinkers in our midst who who think theologically, uh, epistemologically, philosophically, you should have a very important theological question, which is this, so what? Why should I care? Who cares? Come on, pastor. This happened a long time ago. This has nothing to do with us. Why does it matter? It matters because God was at work then, and he is still at work now, and he has never changed. So there's so much that we can learn here. So I want to go back into this text again quickly and pull out some of these key themes. Look at verse 1. Who is the one that causes... Cyrus to have the people go back. God. First of all, it says that Cyrus does this in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. So God had prophesied that this would happen. Cyrus is fulfilling the prophecy. But then it says the Lord moved in the heart of Cyrus. This pagan king, and I want to qualify this here. 
Cyrus is not a godly man. It might be tempting to look at this and say, oh, he's a great man. He was powerfully used by God. His heart was in the right place. No, it's not. He is an absolute pagan. We actually have historical documents of him saying very similar things to other nations about their gods. They can go back and rebuild their temples too because their God is the one true God. This guy didn't care who the one true God was. His goal was to keep them all happy. He wanted to keep his people happy and he wanted to keep all the gods happy because if the gods were happy, they wouldn't cause trouble for him. That was his mindset. Just cover your bases. We have a lot of people like that today. It doesn't really matter what you believe in as long as you just, you know, keep them all happy. Cyrus is not a godly man. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because this is actually a key theme throughout these two books. We will see several world leaders who are on various degrees not very good people, yet they are used by God in powerful ways. Do we have an understanding of God at work that says God can raise up political leaders for his purpose? But that doesn't mean that that political leader is a godly person. So we can separate those two things. We can look at the heart of the individual, but also look at the way that God uses them. You can even see it in the language. Verse 3 calls it the God of Israel who is in Jerusalem. Cyrus sees Yahweh as a local God. This is how they saw things. He's the God over there. And I'm going to keep that God happy. But there's another God over here, and I better keep that guy happy too. We're going to see, though, that that's not ultimately what God wants. He is the one true God over everyone. The other thing that's interesting here is the theme of a new exodus. I gave you a quick summary of some Old Testament history, God rescuing his people out of Egypt and bringing them through the desert into the promised land. Maybe you know these stories. The language here in Ezra is so close to the language of the Exodus. When the Israelites left Egypt, do you know what the Egyptians did? They showered them with gifts and money, commanded by God. Do you know how they built the first temple? With the money that they had received from the Egyptians. God's blessing to carry out God's purposes. The same thing is going on here. And so there's this renewed understanding. This is it. God is at work. He's bringing his people into a land where they will be with him. He's calling them back into this relationship. He's saying, I am with you and that makes you different. Now live different. They're going to have this renewal of the Old Testament law. What should be true about them because they're in relationship with God? And that's what the law is all about. We have this new exodus in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the way that we should ask this, so what, who cares? We are still people looking forward to a promised land. We are people along the way. This world is not our home. This country is not our ultimate destination. Jesus Christ is coming back and taking us to be with him on a new heavens and a new earth. We are still in many ways on Exodus. And there are a lot of things to learn from the Old Testament about how they did well and a lot of things about how they did not do so well that we can learn from and see how God was working in and through them. 
We also have the promises of Jesus Christ and the salvation through his cross and his burial and his resurrection that makes things fundamentally different now that we can lean into these new promises through his son, Jesus. We too, though, are called to be different. We are called to be a unique people in relationship with God. And it's so easy to let go of that because it's difficult. It's difficult to live differently than the world around us. But that has been God's pattern of work throughout all of Scripture. Call people into a relationship, change them to be his representatives. My point is, God worked in the Exodus. God worked in Ezra and Nehemiah. God is still at work today. So many of the issues they faced along the way, different cultures, different languages, different technology, but so many were the same. And the big picture of how God works has never changed. And he is always at work. So as we begin this series, I want to prepare you for something. I want you to be prepared to see profound ways that God calls his people to step out in faith. I want you to be prepared to see amazing ways that people stepped out in faith and to be amazed at that faith and at their obedience. But I also want you to be prepared for disappointment. Because for each of these stories of somebody following God and stepping out in faith, there is equally a profound disappointment that things don't work out all that great. Because I truly believe that what God is doing in Ezra and Nehemiah is preparing us for Jesus Christ. We need more than just a wall, more than just a building, more than just an external commitment to a written law. We need to be changed from the inside out. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And the stage is set here in Ezra and Nehemiah for a great work of God. A grand historical action on the world stage where God is moving people where he wants them and he's preparing them to send his son, Jesus. And it's my hope. It's my hope that what we can see is that the thing that ends up missing from the work of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah is ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very thing we are so privileged to have today. We have it. We need to hold on to it. So as you wonder what God is doing, I want you to trust that he is at work. I want you to trust the ways that he works powerfully through the world. But ultimately, I want you to trust in his ultimate work through Jesus Christ, his son. God sent his son because no actions on our part could ever save us. No actions on our part could ever restore or renew a place to live in God's presence. No actions on our part could ever fulfill God's purpose in the law. No actions on our part could ever build a wall strong enough around us to protect us from this world. We need Jesus. And that is the undercurrent, I believe, through these books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are difficult books in many ways. We will be confronted with difficult issues, issues that in many ways are very foreign to us that make them harder to understand. And yet I pray we would have the humility and the dedication to dig in and to say, God, we believe you are at work and you want to teach us something through these books of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
And so may we sit humbly at your feet and listen to the powerful word that you have given to us. And may we learn. May the Holy Spirit be at work in us, applying these things to our lives and giving us wisdom. And Father, I pray that we would recognize the amazing blessing as people saved by Jesus Christ, that we have the work of Christ that has been given for us to fulfill all of your promises. And when we walk in what seems like disappointment and frustration, when we experience the things in this world that seem so much in opposition to us, I pray that we would remind ourselves we have a God who is always at work. And your work never fails. In your name we pray. Amen.